Crossway Church Sermon Audio. What would you say is the greatest need of the church today? What would be your response to that question? What does the church really need? You know, I, is it racial reconciliation? Is it diversity? Is it, is it the need or the readiness to serve the community with the love of Jesus? Is it a revival, a powerful revival in the Holy Spirit? Is it going to be the banning of and the burning of yoga pants? Is it the renewed focus on prayer and spiritual disciplines? What is it? Or is it the need of discarding social media? And that we would, we would as, a, as a body, uh, just separate ourselves entirely from the world and the culture around us. What, what is, what's your answer? How would you vote? I'm sure there's no shortage of opinions or answers to that question. And Keith Green, if you know that name, he had a ministry of music during the late 70s, early 80s, early 80s until his untimely death in 1982. Keith Green wrote this one song that he spoke to what he believed to be the need for the church. One of my favorite Keith Green songs. It's got a great, great lyric. And this, this man, if you know anything about Keith Green, he was, uh, he was not the kind of guy who pulled punches. He spoke his mind. He spoke sharply to the church and spoke sharply to believers to step up to our Christian discipleship. And in this song, it's, it's certainly that. So I'll, I'll read the lyric to you. I'll put it up there. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Now, he didn't sing it like that, but you get the point. Get the point. It's quite a lyric. It's one of my favorite. So sharp, right? You can't even get out of bed. <laughs> I've, I've quoted that many times in my own mind. But what is? This, this is his summary, his summation of what is the great need for the church today. But we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. And I thank God that he has made it very clear in Scripture to what the need is, what the need of this, of this present evil age, what the need is for the church of Jesus Christ to be faithful, what is the need for us as individual believers to walk in faith and to bring honor and glory to Jesus. We don't have to guess or wonder. It's been articulated. It's been made very clear to us in the words of Scripture. We could go many places. We could go to Matthew 28, to the Great Commission, where Jesus would make abundantly clear what is the need of the moment? What is the, the, the call of duty to the Christian church? Is it not to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and to teach them all that Jesus commanded, right? There it is. In summary form, the last words of Jesus that we know of that are recorded for us in Matthew 28. Or we can go to the last words here in 2 Timothy. These, this is, as we know, these are the last recorded words in epistle from the Apostle Paul, from the pen of the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. So here, contained in these, these chapters, this short epistle, are Paul's last recorded words where he delivers to us what is the need? What is the need of the church? What are we as individual Christians? What ought we be doing with our lives? And certainly it's all here spelled out for us. And our goal, what the goal is, and it's been articulated in many different ways, is that the greatest need for the church is that the saints Live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in faithful obedience. There it is. There it is. 
that we live out the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in faithful obedience. And listen, our goal this morning is going to, we're going to look at this need, this great need of God's people to understand how the Lord answers this need. That's the, the operative part of the sermon this morning is to understand how. How does God operate? How does God function? How does God move in the Christian's life so that we fulfill what he's commanded? So that we live up to the call of the church, to the greatest need of the church. And I assure you the answer that we're going to read from Paul in this letter in chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. It's going to be very different in the manner and the tone than Keith Green, right? thankfully, because the apostles' impassioned words are, are soaked with the grace of Christ. He's going to provide us with grace, and that grace is going to instruct us in how we ought to live, because Christ has not only told us what the need of the church is, but he's also mapped the way forward for our progress as believers, as God's people in this evil world. It's not left us to wonder. He's provided very clear instruction. So let's look together. Chapter 2, verses 1. I'm sorry, verses 8 through 14. 2 Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The title of this message is Do Not Be Ashamed. And the theme, as you can imagine, is very similar. It says, do not be ashamed, but guard the gospel to the utmost, for your, our lives depend on it. Do not be ashamed, but guard the gospel to the utmost. Our lives depend on it. And to faithfully guard the gospel, as we'll unpack in this text, we're going to need to take hold of three different things. Three things, starting with verse 8, where we read, take your share, and we're going to take our share without shame, okay? So our first point is take your share without shame. At the time of writing 2 Timothy, Paul's ministry is in decline, Right? Thus far, we understand, as, as Steve opened up this text in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 last week, that we understand that Paul is rotting away in a Roman prison. Not exactly the place of sterling ministry, of powerful revival ministry. It's not a mission, uh, a place you would imagine to be in a mission outpost. But yet it has become that by the Spirit, right? Paul is writing by the Spirit these very words that we have in this text. And it's Paul's purpose. He's trying to prepare 
Timothy to step into gospel ministry, to step up as he's already been in gospel ministry, to continue to step up with boldness, courage, and with skill to make sure that the church of Jesus Christ is fully established in the gospel, in the truths of scripture, and to be guarding the church as well. And Paul's heart, think about it, it's, it's as though he's a good father who's trying in earnest to see that his son has the best counsel and the best pathway forward to success. He wants to see Timothy established, not just for the good of Timothy, as much as he loves Timothy. And this is a very personal letter, very personal. One of the most personal letters in scripture where Paul addresses Timothy again and again and and personal names are being called out, people whom Timothy and Paul share relationship with. And Paul, we can get a clear of his earnestness, his loving concern for Timothy, but also for the church. The extension of that is that certainly Paul's concern for Timothy, but more importantly for the establishment of the church that Timothy had responsibility over. The New Testament church, the ones that even to this day, to the end of the world, here we are. Thousands of years later, 4,000 some year, uh, miles away from, from the area of Israel. Here we are gathering, New Testament believers. In large part, thanks to the words and the truths and by the Holy Spirit captured for us of Paul through Timothy, and on and on down the line to to us here this morning. And we get a sense of the earnestness of Paul, right? As as Like a good father looking to position his son, that there are 33 different imperatives in this short epistle. That's a lot of commands. An imperative is a command. It's an address, a direction, a directive. So 33 times Paul addresses Timothy in this letter. And with each imperative, Paul is laying a careful foundation for what the church really needs and what the church really needs to be doing. What Timothy needs to be doing in order to function and as for all of us, in order for all of us to function as the people of God in a very dark, dark world. What is this to look like? And with each imperative, he lays out his heart for Timothy as well. And if if Timothy was even up to the attempt to step up to the challenge of furthering gospel mission, he was going to require all the courage, all the zeal, all the experience, and all the skill of the Apostle Paul. And and as is the case for us this morning, if if you, if I, if we're going to step up into the life that God is calling us to, isn't it so true that we need every single piece of equipment that the Lord supplies, every single word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that true? It is. Whether you feel that or not, as a believer, we must know that we must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need equipping. We need grace. We need truth. And so we're going to receive it here from the apostle. We need it. Because it's not safe to be a Christian. It's not simple. It's not safe to be a Christian in this world as it is today. To align with Jesus Christ. To keep to the teachings and the doctrines of the Christian faith. It's not safe. It doesn't earn us creds. It doesn't get us far. We live in a culture and a world today that is turning on Christians, that's turning on Jesus Christ. We're reshaping Jesus Christ to be some sandaled political operative. No, 
to, tr- to hold to the true Jesus Christ will result in persecution. We, we, we follow a Savior who is crucified, who told us in Luke 9, 23, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus, from the very get-go of his ministry, made it clear to his disciples, to follow me is going to cost you. It's not going to be safe for you. And certainly the apostles knew, all except John, met a a dismal fate. John the apostle, being exiled to Patmos, was the only apostle to survive and to live a long life. The others all were murdered. Murdered, cold blood, for their testimony of Jesus Christ. Martyred for the faith. And so many have, have died the same way. And there's no shortcut, there's no alternative pathway for those who seek to live a godly life. Paul's going to tell us in chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That, that's a very clear statement covering all of the disciples of Jesus. Not one of us is left outside of that circle. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin, if you are following him and long to know him more, you will be persecuted. It's not safe. So we can understand in part Timothy's temptation to shame, to shrink back in fear at the costs of the gospel. We get it. I can get it. We've all had to look very carefully at the price tag from time to time of following Jesus. I'm sure you have at times seeing what God has called you to, the obedience of his word, things you've had to leave behind, pleasures that you could no longer please yourself with, people you could no longer spend time with, activities, places, times you could no longer enjoy. The sacrifices that God calls us to, it it is serious. The price tag can be costly to follow our Savior. And so in verse 8, Paul brings a twofold command. He says to us, look with me, verse 8. He says, therefore, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the Christian Christian soul must not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of the apostolic teaching. Instead, we must take our share of suffering. That's the direct imperative here of Paul. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, number one. And secondly, share in suffering. The alternative to being ashamed is to share in suffering. And so we are commanded here to not be ashamed, but to take our share. So this shame that we can experience can take many forms. So it's just two, just to keep things on a shorter side. Number one, we can be ashamed of the Lord specifically, right? And of his doctrine. We can be ashamed of the name of Jesus. I think of Peter, right? In the, in the, in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, when met with a slave girl who identified him as being a follower of Jesus, what did Peter do? He denied, denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. All it took was the featherweight of a, of a slave girl. The featherweight of a slave girl her influence, think about it, she was the least connected person in that courtyard. Like her social score was in the negative numbers. But even that 
was enough to make Peter to be, to be ashamed. He was afraid of being connected with Jesus. And shame certainly comes from that fear of being numbered as a Christian, being harmed by hateful unbelievers and persecutors. Because think about it. Think about the unpopularity, in, in Timothy's case even, of, a, of Paul being in prison, rotting away in prison. The shame of, of being associated with this man, Paul, and his incarceration for a crucified Messiah. Like the shame is layered here. The Christians are being mistreated. They're, they're considered in negative numbers in social standing. And add to that that they're following a dead Messiah, one who's crucified on a, on a bloody Roman cross. This is the scandal of Christianity. This scandalizes people. The world's intellectuals, the sophisticates, the self-confident, they sneer at the naked and the bloody fate of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. They hate, and by extension, they hate the apostles and all who follow that crucified Savior. They hate the idea of Jesus as taught in Scripture. They despise the miracles of the Bible and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. They hate the Christian proclamation that there's only one way to God through Jesus Christ, the Son the risen Savior. They hate that message. And they also hate the fact that the doctrine of hell, that all outside of Jesus Christ will go to hell for eternity. That God will punish all who have not trusted in Jesus, no matter how sincere their faith or de devotion to whatever God they had. Unbelievers hate that message. They will persecute that message. So our shame can be wrapped up in the message of the gospel the scandal of the gospel, but also can be wrapped up in our Lord's unpopular standards, right? I mean, the scriptures teach a lot of things that are very, very unpopular. Homosexuality is a sin, and God will punish all who are given to that lifestyle in hell. That's very unpopular, and it will receive persecution. Transgenderism is wicked and will be punished by God. Abortion is wicked. So many other different things we could say that scripture is so clear about that will receive the ire and the hatred of the world around us. And we could be tempted to be squeamish. We could be tempted to be afraid. What if they knew? What if they found out that I actually believe my wife should submit to my leadership? What if they found out that I believe that transgenderism and the use of pronouns is wicked. That kind of shame. I can understand. We can all understand the cost, the price of that. And all who align with Jesus Christ and his doctrine, they're irredeemable, they're backward, they're backwards bigots. That's what we're becoming, like it or not. That's what we are in the eyes of many. So that's the first kind of shame we can feel is the, the shame of the Lord and his doctrine. Secondly, we can also feel the shame of the cost or the discomfort that comes naturally with the gospel. The gospel has with it the, the actual natural cost, right? Carrying a cross. And I think here of Lot's wife, the example. So Peter being the, for the first example. But in the second example, I think of Lot's wife who, who looked back you think about it, what, what was she doing? Well, she couldn't handle the, 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 the loss of her home and comfort. She, she couldn't deal with it. All that that represented, she was ashamed and embittered by the path that God took her away from Sodom and Gomorrah. She wanted to go back to Egypt. She was ashamed. 
And in that bitterness of soul, she turned around, second-guessed, disobeyed the, the angel's strict orders, and then she bore the consequence of that. So we can be ashamed by the cost, by the discomfort, by all that naturally comes with the gospel. To be Christian and to live in a way that pleases our Savior is uncomfortable. It is. It requires us to humble ourselves through repentance and ongoing confession of sin. Who likes to do that? It requires from us to, 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 to say no to all kinds of pleasurable people, places, and things. It requires carrying a cross, denying ourselves, following Jesus, no matter what comes. No matter what he asks us to do, that we do so at great cost. To be unashamed of the Lord's testimony and the costs associated with following him means that we have to humbly and confidently take our share. Take your share. That's Paul's word to us, to Timothy and to us. Take your share. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And as we do so, it comes right to mind, Matthew 5.10, where Jesus says, blessed or happy. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we will not be unashamed. We will be unashamed. Do not be ashamed, but guard the gospel to the utmost for our lives depend on it. So you need to take three things. The first thing, we need to take our share of suffering for the gospel. If we're going to guard the gospel to the utmost because our lives depend on it. We need to take our share. Secondly, we need to take power from the gospel. And we see this in verses nine through 10 because we need power for this because who can stand up to this, right? Everything I've said thus far, it's steep. It's a heavy climb. Who can abide it? Who is able to climb that precipice. The the attrition rate is very high for the path of Christian discipleship. It is a sad fact that many have given Jesus Christ a try and left him, found Jesus wanting because he failed to bring them expected relief or or instead seemed to make life more difficult than they thought he would make it easier for them. No. No. And so they leave Jesus to find more successful or more pleasurable alternatives. Paul the Apostle watched one disciple after another abandon him. All of Asia, he says, abandoned him. Gospel was abandoned by Philegius and Hermogenes in, in chapter fi- of 1 verse 15. He's going to name a couple names in a few verses here. And also in Demas in chapter 4 verse 10 where he names this man named Demas who, who loved this present world. He loved this world, the comforts of this world. He couldn't bear the cost of discipleship. So what does he do? He gives up on Jesus because Jesus was not pulling the weight for him. It didn't meet the grade. Jesus failed to pass the test for what Demas wanted out of this world, out of this life. The same could be said about Homogenes and Philegius. These people began the course of their discipleship and they bore their cross but inevitably ran out of gas. They ran out. Listen, this, this, this life that Christ, the suffering that Christ has proclaimed and promised to those who follow him, it is beyond us. It is beyond us. We all have loved ones who we know by name who at one point followed Jesus but now hate him. 
Our church has excommunicated people over the years, people who have abandoned the life of Christ, abandoned the teachings and the doctrines of Christ and are living in this world, trying to absolutely soak themselves in worldliness to satisfy themselves. It's a tragic thing. These people are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, Paul would say in chapter three, verse eight. Who can do it? Who has it in them? Who has got the power? None of us. None of us. We need power from outside of ourselves, power that can outsize and outlast whatever is thrown at us. And that's where the gospel does not disappoint. And that's why exactly why Paul goes right to verse 9 and 10 to share the gospel with Timothy. Because in the, in the, in the face of such stout struggles and such bitter cost and such sharp outcomes of being a Christian, Paul's antidote to that is to preach the Lord Jesus Christ and to hold up the gospel because the gospel has what it takes to empower the Christian believer to endure whatever comes, whatever, whatever form of suffering, whatever the Lord has commanded of you, whatever shape and dimension of the cross that he has given to you, Jesus has supplied through the gospel all the grace that's needed to keep on going and to keep on growing. That's why Paul now spends these next several verses to unpack the gospel. He takes us to the nuclear core of the gospel. He shows us the engine of Christian endurance. It's like he opened the hood. He's, he's letting us look in. Man, how many cylinders does this have? What's the output on this engine? It's nuclear. This thing is nuclear. The power of the gospel. So firstly, verse 9, read with me. Paul says this about the gospel. By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Wow. It's a lot to be said. lot could be said, but God's first and foremost, God will not share credit with us. Let's start there. Notice in this verse, similar as you'll find in many places of Paul's preaching about the gospel, Ephesians 2, places in Romans, it is not by works. You have no credit in salvation. Nothing you have done. Who you are, what you are, has only ever deserved God's eternal wrath. Before Christ, you and I had no shot. If God would look, us, look at us, he would despise and hate us. He would cast us into punishment. That's the nature of our existence before Christ. We will not share credit with God when it comes to salvation. Our power, our works are futile, they're voided, they're stupid, they're empty. And we laugh, think about it. We laugh at the self-determined toddler who is convinced that they can tie their own shoes. We, we know they can't do it. They could, they could try all day. <laughs> they, they don't have the skills. They, they don't understand the mechanics of those. I, I forget that there's a little rhyme for the bunny ears thing. And they don't know what they're doing. They're just playing with strings. And they could sit there for seven hours. 
As determined as they might be, they don't have the fine motor skills to do it. They're helpless. They're foolish. And there they are sitting on the ground, insistent, right? They're defiant. I will do it. We can laugh at that example, but how much more foolish for any person to think that they could earn or to add to the salvation that God alone can procure for sinners. God alone. Salvation is the Lord's from beginning to end and everything in the middle. It is of the Lord. It belongs to God. It is God's to give. It is God's to purchase and praise the Lord. He has done it. We sang about this. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's the gospel. That's the salvation that we celebrate, that Paul has drawn our attention to. It is nothing to do with us. We are saved and called all by God's power and grace. So for all who are believers, God not only worked by providing the way, through Jesus Christ, but he also provided in time for us to actually believe. So he provided Christ, right? That happened 2,000 some years ago in Israel. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem and he rose from the grave three days later. He ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. God did that. That was all God. God the Father with God the Son. God, the Holy Spirit, now brings that alive to our hearts. That is the gospel. God did it. That's the way of salvation. Now, the means of that salvation, how that salvation actually landed on your heart, God did that too. That's what Paul means when he says he saved us and called us to a holy calling. It's that God not only saved and provided the means of salvation, but he also opened up so real space and time in your life. At a point in your timeline in history, you believed, if you are a Christian, you believe the gospel. And God saw to that as well. That is all of God. So whether we're talking about the cross in salvation or we're talking about you choosing, I put that in scare quotes intentionally, you choosing to follow Jesus, either way, same answer. God did it. 100% all of Christ. Paul says it explicitly here. He saved us and called us by his own power. God did it. And if that was not clear enough that God did it all, Paul adds these incredible last four words when he says, before the ages began in verse 9. So he gave this all to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So if it wasn't clear enough that this is all of God, think about this. What does that mean before the ages began? It simply means this, that it was decided, it was a done deal even before any of us existed, even before there was a creation, before you could even lift a finger, God already did it before the ages began. God's electing and saving grace Jesus Christ accomplished it in time, but God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, long ago, before ages, before the ages, before time eternal, as the King James puts it, before times eternal, God did it. The force of those words ought to simply be, wow, Lord, this is all about you. You, you, O Lord, saved me. God, it was your work, your power, your grace. I could do nothing, but you did it all. 
What a, what a great salvation. I mean, that, that ought to be one thing to just reflect on right now. Just how great is your salvation? How great is it? That God would do it all because you and I could not do anything. We could do nothing. Nothing. And if we tried, we would only further evidence our needing to go to hell. We would only furnish God with more points to judge us by, to destroy us in hell for. But by God's grace, in his electing grace, in his saving grace, in his calling grace, God saved and did it all. And what did he do? What was the accomplishment in verse 10 tells us? And which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Jesus Christ has canceled death. That's what God has done. He abolished death. Listen, I, I, I have felt the relief of an exam being canceled or a snow day. Remember those feelings? Those are some of the coolest feelings as a kid. When you, got, you heard the phone call at like 6 a.m., you knew it was a phone call of freedom. It's like, yes. And those are, the, those are the few times, and I was not a Christian when I was a kid, but those are the few times I probably did praise the Lord. It's like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the snow. And I've certainly felt the relief of points when, when, when near-death experience and maybe a near-car accident where you feel that sense of, oh, man, wow, that could, have been, that could have been me. But death, that's, that's what Paul's teaching here, is death is abolished. Death itself is abolished by Jesus Christ. It's abolished, it's canceled. Christ canceled death. And maybe the lack of enthusiasm or comfort that we might at times feel about this, I think it would show a lack of understanding of what it means that Christ abolished death. Because after all, believers still die, right? So what does that mean, that Christ canceled death? Because Christians, if you look at the statistics, which there are none, but if you would, you would see that we are right in line with Muslims or with all-out pagans when it comes to cancer when it comes to kidney failure, when it comes to heart disease, when it comes to diabetes. Like we're right in line with everyone else who dies and why they die. Like there's not, there's, what is it then? What does that mean that Jesus Christ canceled death? Well, what it means is that death's former purpose has been shut down. It's been shut down, which is great news for us who must face judgment because what Christ has done is to bring a conclusion to that terrible and fitting end for a sinner. See, death was given as a punishment as part of the curse. God promised that. I mean, if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And part of that death, certainly physical, but also there'd be the ongoing punishment of God, the holy judgment of God for eternity. That death, the second death, is what Revelation refers to that death as. The second death. Well, that's the death that Christ canceled, is that second death. And has forever changed the first death now to become something of a springboard to the very thing that every true Christian longs for anyway. Don't you want to see Jesus? Do you not long? to see your soul completely transformed and perfected in the presence of Christ. Don't you long for that? Aren't you done with this? I am. 
And we ought to feel that together as God's people. Lord, come quickly. Please, Jesus, quick. Come, rescue and end this world. Rescue your people. But Christ has opened the entrance into the eternal kingdom in God's glorious light of God's glorious presence. So that death is no longer a severance. It's no longer, it's abolished by Christ. Now in Christ, death has become the path to light and to immortality. That's the transformation that Jesus Christ brings to his people, to all who know Christ. But to those who do not belong to Christ, they will certainly face the second death. And I would urge you this morning, are you going to look at the grave with confidence? Can you look today, if you were to go to a graveyard and look at a grave, do you have confidence that when your body goes into something similar, that your soul is not in the second death. Do you know Christ? And I would urge you, if you don't know, if you're uncertain about that, you need to be certain. You need to be assured whether you belong to Christ or not. Get to the bottom of that. Ask questions. Go to Scripture. Pray. Ask the Lord to deliver you from death. And that only will happen through his son, Jesus Christ. So, From beginning to end, from death and eternal life, our faith is the product and the power of God. So what prevents us? Here's the question. What prevents us from taking our share? If this is the gospel we're referring to, what prevents us? Because it's the power that works every ounce of our salvation is the same exact power that endures a Christian to walk in steadfast obedience to the Christ. The same power. We're not talking about two types of power here. No, we're talking about the same gospel that saves you is the same gospel that will sanctify you and will help you to endure. That same power at work in us by the Spirit is doing its work right now. That's the power of God. And that's what Paul's referring to when he says, by the power who saved us, by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So Timothy's encouragement in this letter from Paul is simply this, that God has provided, has financed the way. Jesus Christ paid it all. And part of that paid it all, we have to understand this, the gospel. When we sing the words, Jesus paid it all, all literally means everything from from the point of our salvation, even before eternity passed, to the moment we stand before the throne. To the moment of judgment, Jesus paid it all. Your obedience, Jesus paid for that. He supplies his Holy Spirit for that. All of the grace that we need. So do you need grace? Yes, we need grace and God has supplied it. So may our fears be snuffed out like a match in a hurricane. That somehow, that somehow salvation or or the Lord's grace will not come to us in endurance. No, it's been fully financed. So do not be ashamed, but guard the gospel to the utmost. Our lives depend on it. This brings us to our third and final point, verses 11 through 14. So we can all understand Timothy's timidity. That's, that's, that's a mouthful. Timothy's timidity. We can understand it. We get it. We look at the price tag to step up, to, to take our share of the gospel's sufferings. But then we consider Paul's words, they come here with power with comfort. The gospel. The gospel's for real. The gospel's power to save us is for real. The gospel's power to help us to endure is real. It's all real. God's doing it. 
For all those who are in Christ, it's really happening. So Paul, this is not platitudes. There there is real power in the grace of God to save us and to cause us to grow as disciples wherever the Lord plants us. Whatever kind of soil is the soil you're in dark and acidic, the Lord will cause you to thrive and grow where you are, wherever that is. Whatever burdens you have to bear in carrying your cross as a disciple of Jesus Christ, God will supply, has already paid it all. He's going to supply it. That's his promise. That's his faithful promise. So in verses 11 through 14, we're going to now look not only at the the promise of the gospel, but we're also going to see at Paul's experience, his own personal testimony of how the gospel came alongside. Paul assures Timothy by his own example. Timothy's not alone. Isn't that good to know? That we're not alone. That Paul himself is bearing the brunt of the same discipleship and the cost and the price tag of following Jesus. Paul's suffering. He's in a dark, dark place. He's not an ivory tower elite. No, he's he's literally in the darkest place possible in a Roman dungeon. Cold, old man, writing probably from a candle or from the light of a window. And he's drinking the cup of the gospel suffering in these very moments that he's writing this paragraph to Timothy. Very moment. And the summary of Paul's life and experience is beautifully captured in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. These are beautiful words. Talking about this gospel, which is for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Listen, the gospel's power to preserve and protect our faith is a settled fact. It has been lived out again and again and again. Here it's lived out in Paul's experience. He just told us. He himself has, he knows whom he has believed. In other words, he has experienced, he knows that these are tried and tested truths. These are not just platitudes or well-wishing. This is actual, functional, powerful truth that actually will preserve the soul and actually cause God's people to go into trial with faith. And I count it as one of the greatest privileges in leading worship that I get to look out on your faces. Not many of you have that opportunity. It is so sweet to look on your faces for one reason is that it's so inspiring because I know many of your stories as I'm leading worship. I know what you're enduring. You've told me. You've told me what the cost, the price tag has been for you personally. Much as Paul is describing for himself, you have described to me. And then I'm watching you as you worship and your hands are up in the air and you're belting it out to Jesus, to our Savior. What an absolutely beautiful picture of the very truth of what Paul is saying in this room, in your faces. Thank you for your faith. For many of you have endured hardship in the gospel with faith. There are so many stirring testimonies. And so many of you have lived out what Paul says here. I know whom I have believed. Brothers and sisters, this is Christian confidence. We're not merely subscribing to some creedal imperative to the words and facts in the case of Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly it is those things, of course. We believe all that the Lord has spoken is true in his word and these are the words of eternal life. 
but we have also believed and we have known them to be true. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We have known the one whom we have believed and that's the personal testimony of every true Christian. We know, we have tasted, we have seen that the Lord is good. We know the faithful presence of the Lord in our soul. We know that he will meet us in the day of trouble. We know that he will carry us in the moment of persecution. We know whom we have believed. We know and we trust and we love him. Even if he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is the testimony of the Christian heart. Though God brings me the worst day imaginable, yet then I will trust him. Even though he slay me, I will trust him. And there's something wrong. If I would watch a brother or a sister walk through a terrible trial and I would say to myself, I could never go through what they're doing. I could never do that. Why is that wrong? Why is it wrong to think that? Well, it's completely dismissive of everything Paul has just stated about the power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does God say? Jesus paid it all, including your obedience and your endurance under trial. So lest we say those things, let's take what Paul says to heart. And in fact, if if you're there, I think if you're under the pressure of the pain of suffering and sorrow, and your testimony is bitter, if, if you're disconnected in your heart from the Lord, this is, this is time for, for me to get your attention. You need to repent. For you to remain in this place of no life, no hope, in a path that forgets the greatness and the goodness of the Lord, you're going to see your faith harden, your heart harden and diminish. It's, listen, it's, we're all responsible to glorify the Lord in whatever condition he places us. You are responsible right now for the way you think about God, for the way that whether you praise him or not, whether you're able to say like Job said, yet though he slay me, I will praise him. Whether you are able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You are responsible for whether you say those things and believe those things or not. And God empowers his people to say them, to desire them, to be devoted to the Lord, even come what may. So my call to you is please repent. Turn from that unbelief, from that bitterness of heart. Because Paul's testimony must be our own. We know the one we have believed and we are convinced that he is able to guard what what he has entrusted to us, the gospel. Ushers, you can make ready the tables for communion. So we begin to shift gears here. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. I just want to say briefly Keith Green's rebuke to the church in his song Asleep in the Light. You know that you can't even get out of bed. Jesus rose from the dead, but you you can't even get out of bed. Listen, I there's something wrong with that statement if it's isolated from the gospel. It's actually quite self-righteous to say. Now, thankfully, Keith apparently had some change of heart, became softer in the grace of God as his ministry went on before his untimely death. But Keith, listen, we must, yes, we must be awake as Christians. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must make progress and grow. We must guard the good deposit that has been trusted to us. We must, we must, and we must. Listen, there are a lot of musts. There are a lot of imperatives that we will hear, certainly even in this letter, 33 to be exact, right? 
And yes, Keith, Keith Green, our lives depend on it. So we should be awake in the light. But comfort, oh comfort my people, says the Lord of hosts. Comfort, oh comfort. Listen, our, our following Jesus, our guarding the good deposit comes because we are being guarded, because we have been taken hold of. The fact that you have any grip at all is the grace of God. The fact that you know to call on the name of the Lord in the day of distress is the grace of God. The fact that you even know the name of Jesus, that you know that he's the son of God and savior is all of God's grace. It is all of God's grace. So our glorifying the Lord in the days of suffering rather than cursing him or being disconnected from him, we will receive grace to walk that out by the power of God at work by the spirit. So do not be ashamed but guard the gospel to the utmost because our lives depend on it. And in that gospel, now we get to to live it out a bit. Sacrament of the Lord's Supper is our opportunity to partake. It's like like a little play. It demonstrates physically for us deeper spiritual realities. We get to see, we get to be a part in acting this out, in taking the bread and taking the wine in showing the sacrifice of Jesus and receiving it, partaking in it, swallowing it. Like, that's the whole point. Is like, we want this so deep in us, we're going to swallow these things. Much as the prophet Jeremiah would swallow the, 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 the scroll of God's word so it was deep down in his belly. So we swallow the elements to take them down deep. We want the gospel deep in us for its power. So all who are truly Christian who have repented and believed the gospel, who are in good standing with his church, you are welcome to partake in the Lord's Supper. You are welcome to come to the table. If you have unconfessed sin or there's hidden sin in your life, I would urge you, do not partake. Do not partake. If you're under church discipline, do not partake. If you have not yet been baptized, which is the first step of Christian obedience, please do not partake. Be baptized. November 12th. It's coming up. Be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And instead, instead of partaking, if if one of those describes you, please take these moments to consider, to reflect, and be willing to take whatever steps are necessary for you to be in obedience to the Lord. Okay? But all who are ready and prepared, let's partake in faith. Let's consider afresh the meaning and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to go to the, the old catechisms, the Baptist, Reformed Baptist catechisms. These are the catechism that uh, we're using in Doctrine 101. So you're going to get a little picture of that this morning, what they're memorizing. Our fifth and sixth graders are memorizing these questions. Question number 107 and 108 tell us, what is the Lord's Supper? And I thought this would be helpful to refresh us to, to what we're doing here, the, the meaning and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. So question 107, what is the Lord's Supper? Read it with me. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament in which by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's command, his death is displayed. Worthy receivers are made partakers of his body and blood by faith, not in a bodily or physical manner to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace with all his benefits. That's beautiful. It's good stuff. Okay, question 108. What is required for receiving the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner altogether? Those who would partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner are required to examine themselves to be aware of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. 
of their faith to feed on him and of their repentance, love, and new obedience. They do this so that they do not eat or drink judgment to themselves by coming unworthily. Excellent. Well, in light of those truths, we're going to partake by faith and do what the, the Apostle Paul commands. For I received from the Lord as I also delivered to you the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you in this moment, this feast that you have prepared for us. Lord, though the physical feast is limited to a small piece of bread and a cup of wine, it's very small. Lord, the spiritual nourishment, the feast that this provides is unfathomable. The depth of riches and mercy of Christ. In this moment, your spirit, oh God, fill our hearts with faith to partake in a worthy manner of our Savior. That every person who is a believer who partakes of this bread and of this cup this morning, I pray you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would cause in us the awe and the joy and the remembrance of our Savior's death for our sin. And you'd build in us again, Lord, a fresh hope that you are coming soon. And that even as we partake, we would partake with the expectation and the desire. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and bring the great Lamb's feast, that final feast that puts to end all other feasts. Jesus, come. As we come this morning, prepare us now. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.